0: brother. If you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We come today in the face of a lifetime of God revealing Himself to us day in and day out. Again, this morning we spoke from Psalm 19 about the general revelation of God. Every day in our lives, God is revealing His existence to us through creation. Even if you come here today and you've never heard of the Bible, you've never heard of the Gospel, you've never known of Christianity, that's probably unlikely in our cultural context. But if that were to be true, God has still revealed Himself. He's still made Himself known. The heavens declare the glory of God. And what we find in our world is that in spite of God having revealed Himself as gracious and merciful and being our Creator, man rebels against Him. But this morning as we gather, we gather around a more monumental revelation of God. Here we are given a clear picture in John of who we are apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are the darkness in verse 4 and 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, the, the reality going on in, in this narrative is the reality that Jesus is the only light and the rest of humanity apart from him uh, live in darkness. So again, here we're given the, a, a robust uh, Christology. Christology. Uh, that Jesus is the pre-incarnate Son of God. That He is the beginning of all beginnings. That He is the one through whom all things were made. Uh, there is nothing that was made that is sustained at this moment that didn't come through Christ. That he was the means of its creation. Jesus is the light of the world. The one who has not been overcome by all of the darkness. And in verse 14, we have that climactic statement, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of salvation and revelation. That Jesus didn't come with just a little bit of salvation, but rather He is full, overflowing with salvific ability and with revealing of who the living God is. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. And what we find here in this first chapter of John is the reality that Calvin spoke of that Jesus is both our Creator and also our Redeemer. And John then is pictured in this first chapter as the witness to that reality. That, that, that God in His kindness, not only did He create the world, and then man rebelled, and God continued to sustain the world as a theater for His redemption, but God is so gracious that in the fullness of time He sent His Son into the world. But not only was God so gracious to send the Redeemer into the world, but He was gracious enough to send a witness to that Redeemer so that we wouldn't miss the reality that the Redeemer has come. Let us never underestimate the reality of the glory of God in His kindness towards us. And then we found in these closing verses of John that there is this impulse of of, of the disciples of, of, of John finding Jesus and, and, and then ultimately after they have found the Messiah, they go out and they find other people. They, they, there's this continual progression of finding Jesus and finding others. And so there is this, this, we have found Him. We have been found by Him. Come and see. And that, that phrase, come and see, is repeated three times in this closing narrative of chapter 1. 1. And that's the full force of this chapter. Jesus is the pre-incarnate Son of God. He is the only Redeemer. He came full of grace and truth. He has found us. We have found Him. Come and see. That's what is being said in the first chapter. What a glorious reality. That, that, that first chapter deserves, I think, to be preached repeatedly, um, perpetually in the church of God. It, it's so wonderful that that is... the the, the background of what we come to today. So with that in mind, if you would stand to do honor to the reading of God's Word as we read these first 12 verses of chapter 2 together. Now now you remember that that John likes to use this phrase in the very next day and the next day, and so here we come to chapter 2 and we're on day 3 as John writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to them, everyone who serves the good wine first, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first sign, first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is God's Word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning so thankful for the glory of knowing Christ. So thankful that if this world were to pass away in the next moment, we know that we would not pass away, but we would abide forever in Christ glorying in the work that you have done throughout redemptive history. Father, we're so thankful to know uh, the promises of Scripture. We're so thankful to know of the witness of Scripture. We're so thankful to know of the transformative effect of Scripture in our lives. So, Father, would you, by the working of your Spirit today and not by my mere words, transform our hearts and help us to see what you have for us in these 12 verses, that we might give you praise that is due your name in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Every one of the Gospels has to wrestle with the public ministry of Jesus. And here we find again John starting abruptly, succinctly pointing to that reality. We don't have in John's Gospel uh, glimpses of his boyhood. Now you'll remember in Luke chapter 2, there is the narrative of Jesus going, he's lost and goes to Uh, the temple rather his family loses him and he goes to the temple and and there interacts with the teachers and and the teachers marvel at at his ability to to speak truth and to handle the the word and and then we find these words and that and jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both god and man so there is kind of a pointing to Jesus' childhood in Luke chapter 2, but we don't have that here in John. And, and throughout the Gospels, we don't have a robust view of the time that Jesus is growing during that period. We do know that He is is, is growing, but we don't know all of the ins and outs of that. And, and there have been many who have speculated. There are extra biblical uh, letters and books that speculate about that time period. But I think what we need to What we need to come to in wrestling with that period of time between Christ's birth and the beginning of His public ministry is the Word is sufficient in what it reveals. We don't know all of those things because we don't need to know all of those things. What we need to see is the initiation of Christ's ministry here at this wedding. Uh, We find Jesus here at this wedding. Jesus, excuse me, Joseph is not here. And as some surmise that he's dead at this point but I don't know that we know that for sure what we do know is that Mary is here and we know that Mary will be found both at the beginning of Christ's public ministry and she is found at the end and that reminds us also of Luke chapter 2 and the nunc dimittis when 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 Simeon tells Mary that that her heart will be pierced through and that Jesus is is for the rising and the fall of many in Israel. And and we know that that prophetic pronouncement is true, that she is there at the end of Christ's earthly ministry. But here we find her at the very beginning. And here Jesus is at a wedding, and we don't necessarily know the, the connection. We don't know that, that there's nothing in, uh, explicit in the text that points to uh, where the, con- the the connection of his, this invitation is. We just know that he's been invited. And, and, and what we need to understand contextually about weddings during this time period is that weddings were not what they are today. Uh, during this cultural time period, weddings were not merely a ceremony. Weddings weren't something that you got an invitation to and, okay, I'm going to have to set a suit aside and we're, we'll show up for an hour. Weddings in this particular context were a transformative event in the life of both the individual and the community. I think mean, one of the things that we have neglected and that we no longer understand about the biblical economy and the cultural context of, of marriage in, in, in its fullness is that it's, it's meant not only for the two individuals, but it's meant for the entire community to celebrate and hear in such a way that, listen, you didn't just get in the minivan and drive halfway across the country. It took weeks for some of your relatives to get there. These were very planned out events and very important events, and, and they would go on for a very long time. Work would cease, and, and the party would last for days. This wasn't, oh, and by the way, a parenthetical just hour of Jesus' life. No, this was, a, this was, he's at a wedding. This is a long period of time, of celebration, of substantial consequence, you have to understand that we have so degradated what marriage means inside of the community. And I find even Christians willing, because we've lived so long in the degradation of marriage, to just kind of throw up our hands and say, well, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. And, and, and here, if something goes wrong at the wedding feast, we just go, well, shame on that caterer. We won't hire them again. But here there would be public open shame to an individual if there was a problem at that wedding feast because it's so public, it's so important, it's so transformative, it's so central to the life of the community of believers. And so here we find Jesus in the midst of all of that. We find Him in the middle of of this obscure wedding but an obscure wedding that to those who were participating meant so much and and something major does happen here something that wouldn't happen at a baptist wedding i don't know some of you might remember jerry clower and he uh he talks about uh the the uh, teetotaling women that he knew and there's one in particular i forget the entire joke but he He's debating with this woman, I think, about whether or not, you know, what the, the position on alcohol. And he, he rebuts this teetotaling uh, woman with, with asking, well, what about that time when Jesus turned the water into wine? And the woman's response was, yeah, well, I would have thought a whole lot more of him if he hadn't done that. Uh, unfortunately, I think in some of our circles, we've taken that tact and we've added more. And there's several things in this text that... Uh, Guys, I was taught a lot of things, and I'm not here this morning to make a a plea that you drink alcohol. That's not my uh, my point, but I think we have to be careful to say what the Bible says, and no more, no less. I think that's an important thing. Uh, Here, the the problem is very immediate. The wine runs out. and so, so what we have, to, we have to do as we come to this text is we have to be careful because as I've read through several different perspectives on this particular passage, I've, I've found that there is this impulse to allegory in the church and there's this impulse to do well. See, we live 200 years, for, for about the past 200 years, we have lived in a time, now sadly I think this time's coming to an end, um, where uh, novels... And the building of characters and plot lines and stories and and, and, and whatever genre you like to read if you're a reader uh, has been built out for this past couple hundred years in our cultural context such that when we read something, what we expect is that the, the beginning of the work is building of characters and fascination with the different flaws of the characters and, and really trying to, to help understand the tension. And there's always some foreshadowing and there's some things that in the text that that maybe we need to read a little bit deeper than what the words convey. That's not how we should read our Bible. We should read the words for what they say and what they mean. Uh, We should understand them, not as as, as trying to inflect things that we can't really surmise from the text, but to see what we can know and and what is so clear here. And so again, what we know is that the water has run out, Um, others would would encourage us as we look at verses 4 and 5 here. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And His mother says to the servants, Do whatever He tells you. Uh, That begins in verse 3. Uh, with her telling him they, they have no wine and 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 here some would say we need to read into the penumbra of what Mary and Jesus's interaction is and and we need to figure out their psychological state we need to figure out their relational dynamics we, we, we need to we need to to understand them more more fully from from these words some would 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 make Mary presumptive of Jesus here she's she's looking at Jesus and she's presuming he's going to do something and jesus here many have said is being dismissive he says to to his mother woman now there's something for y- young people in here if your mom ever tells you to do something i don't recommend in the cultural context that you find yourself to look at her and say woman it's not going to go well for you and what happens oftentimes when, when people interpret this verse is they pick up on that. In our culture, saying woman to your mama is going to get your mouth smacked. In this context, it's not a, a, a sense of being dismissive to his mother. It's not disrespectful language here. It is somewhat distancing. It is somewhat uh, removing Jesus. You see in this language when he says, woman, my hour is not yet come. There is a distancing from his mother in the sense that he is pivoting to his earthly ministry. He is is moving away from her care in that motherly sense and and in the direction of doing and going about what his father has sent him to do. And so we need to be mindful of those things and not read into the text more than what is here. But again, if we're going to understand this text rightly, we need to see the cultural significance of the issue here. The responsibility of the groom, you had one job to do, buddy. And that was to bring the wine and to make sure that there's enough for the people that you invited. And, and, and if you run out, that's a big deal. That's tragic. That, that's an embarrassing failure. It, it's really an impossible issue for this groom. It, it's a truly stunning problem. It's something that would not have happened very often. Uh, this is not a problem that, oh, big deal, you ran out of wine, somebody go down to the, to the 7-Eleven and pick up something to, to spike the punch with. That's not the, the issue here. The issue is that running out of wine in this cultural context meant that there would be a significant stigma attached to this couple for the rest of their lives. And, and maybe not in a way that, that it would have cost them much, but it would have been, do you remember when old so-and-so got married? That old boy didn't have sense enough to bring enough wine. There would have been public embarrassment and shame here. I think it's interesting to note in light of all of that, that our Savior is not one who is interested in publicly stigmatizing people for the rest of their lives. He comes full of grace and truth. And so the the problem that's presented here is the wine is gone. Again, not a Baptist problem. What does Jesus say? Jesus turns to his mother in verse 4 and says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, what is his hour? In the narrative of, of, of John's gospel, in the narrative of redemptive history, what is the hour of Christ? The hour of Christ, the, the, the climax of the ministry of Christ and the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the pinnacle, the hour, the moment of Jesus is found there on the cross. That is his hour. In his suffering and his dying for you and I. That is the hour to which Jesus is pointing. And that hour isn't even close yet. Mary, what do I My hour hasn't come. Whatever this meant to Mary, she she does respond well. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever He tells you. Follow Him. Mary expects here Jesus to do something. And that's, that's quite incredible. Mary is expecting Jesus to move in a direction. Now, now we have to back up here and remember, we know Jesus for who He is. We've read all, all of John. We, we've seen the end of the story. We know that He is who he is well quite frankly we've read the start of the story we've read chapter one we know that he is the one who is in the beginning but but the people here didn't know that necessarily and Jesus is not the master of the feast he's not the guest of honor he's not a member of the wedding party he's merely a witness he is somebody just in the crowd at this moment and Mary pivots and and she says they're out of wine because Mary knew what John has already told us in John chapter one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and uh, that was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Mary knew that every single. Moment that something goes wrong in the cosmos is an opportunity for her son Jesus to display His redemptive glory. That's what she knew. She knew that He was before all things. And so she turns to Him and she speaks to Him the problem. Friends, it's good for us to remember in our own lives and in our own day that every issue that we experience is an event that potentially may express the fullness of who Christ is. That He is the one who has come full of grace and truth. And so even in the when it seems, and our culture increasingly wants us to believe that Jesus is a marginal figure out in the peripheral of human history. And isn't it wonderful that that's where we find Him here? And yet He is the one that meets the problem. Everything that goes wrong, everything that has been made, even this particular instance, the mundane reality that they ran out of wine is the background to Jesus beginning His ministry. No problem that we face comes outside of the context of Christ seeking to display His glory in our lives. And you're thinking, maybe in your mind right now, yeah, but there's this one problem I have, and I don't think Jesus really has anything to do with that problem. I promise you, you are wrong. Now, you may spend the rest of your life not knowing how Jesus impacts that particular problem this side of heaven, but I promise you in glory, your mind will be fully renewed and you will understand. Jesus here is the one who was before the beginning of beginnings, and so running out of a little bit of wine isn't a problem when you've created the entire cosmos for your glory. This passage reveals His glory in a a big way. And so Mary says, do whatever He says. And so we find the particulars of what's going on here. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding... 20 or 30 gallons now if we do the quick math here we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood 20 or 30 gallons per jar we're talking about 180 gallons of water that's poured into these vessels Uh, we have no wine now we have these vessels they're full of water 180 gallons of it a lot and, and what we have to see there is the juxtaposition of things in this text. When, and a juxtaposition of how things change when Christ shows up. In, in verse 3, we find out that the water is run out. But in verse 7, here shortly, we see that the vessels are full. To the brim. Jesus reverses the problem entirely. When He comes, the problem is that there's nothing left, and by the time that He's interjected into the story, the pots are completely full to the top. They are full to the full. And, and what we have to see also here is that the servants do exactly what Mary says. When she says, do whatever He says... The servants don't stand around and build a a college and discuss about what Jesus really meant by filling the jars. They filled the jars. They do what He says to do. And it's a lamentable reality that in our day there are many churches that want to take the imperatives of what Christ commands for His church and we can all sit down and debate them. That's not... What mary says to do don't don't sit down and debate whether we should do what jesus has commanded Do what he said to do why waste time debating? When we can live in the glory of uh, of doing what the creator god The one who was in the beginning before the beginnings has told us to do It's insanity to the debate to debate. Excuse me. I can talk. I just got to slow down to debate what If we truly believe Jesus is who John says Jesus is, why in the world would we ever say, yeah, but did Jesus really mean that we should love our neighbor? Uh, I mean, there's got to be a way out of that. Because you've never met my neighbor. Uh, We've got to... Understand that this imperative and the way that the, these humble servants respond is such an example to us today that, that we should do the very things that Jesus tells us to do as a church. What is our way forward? How do we impact St. Angelo? For the cause of Christ, the glory of God in the year 2023. Do we need to get consultants? Do, do, do we need a, a new fresh vision and plan? No, we need to do what Jesus told us to do. We need to live in light of His grace and in light of His clear and imperative commands. We see also something in this passage that That the groom is in a position of provision and responsibility. That the first act that this groom has in the life of his bride is to make sure that he brings enough wine. And he is demonstrating to her family and to the community, I will take responsibility for her and I will provide for her. Now regardless of what our current culture says, men, that is still our responsibility today. To provide and to take responsibility for our families. And what we find is that the, the reality of all of our lives here, the man fails. And that's the story of all of Scripture. Men fail at what God has called them to do. But what we see more gloriously is that Jesus never fails. He is the one who comes to graciously provide even when we have failed to do those very things that God has called us the master of the feast then in verse 8 Jesus commands them after they have filled the water now, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast and so They took it, and we need to understand that the master of the feast is the person in charge. He's the one who is there to grease the wheels. He's the one that is there to make sure that everything goes off without a hitch so that the bride and groom and their family can focus on the community, the social aspects of this gathering. The groom shouldn't have to worry about whether or not there's enough wine because he's already brought it, and it's just the master of the feast who is there to dispense it. And so they take this wine to the master of the feast, and the master of the feast says, Hold on. Where, where has this come from? And he calls the groom over. And, and, and what he's doing here in verse 10 is he's appealing to a conventional wisdom. He's saying, He's saying, everybody knows this. We know how this works. You don't bring out the, the good wine first. You, you, you don't just pile up the, excuse me, you do bring out, sorry, you do bring out the good wine first, and, and the reason for that in conventional wisdom is this, everybody knows that as you continue to consume alcoholic wine, what happens? The taste really doesn't matter. The drunks don't really care how good the wine is. So you want the sober people to enjoy the good wine because their taste buds are functioning. And this gets... Never mind, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. There's an entire hermeneutic of of wine in in the biblical sense that just drives me up a wall because it, it never washes with the text, but we go on saying it because we live past prohibition and we feel justified in doing so. Again, not here today to promote any use of alcohol, but what I will say is here we see a clear understanding that in this community there was a common sense that you're, if, you, if you have good wine, you serve it first. You serve it to the best that are, are there. And he's saying, what, what he's demonstrating is, look, this isn't just watered down wine. Because somebody's going to accuse the first miracle of Jesus as being a fraud, and he just slipped in a little bit of wine into the water. That's not what's going on here. This isn't watered down wine. This is really good wine. This is fine wine. And so what's the point here? The point is, Jesus again has provided miraculously. He's merely a witness. He's in the peripheral of this wedding and yet He saves the day. We don't know at this very moment what Mary is thinking, but we—I I do suspect that as she moves on in her lifetime, that that there's a putting together of that. His first miracle, there there was wine in that context, and right before his death at the Last Supper, he 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 acknowledges the wine as being the symbol of his new covenant and the picture of his blood to. To the church that, that wine is an image that, that is all throughout uh, the the new testament, and what 's important is that we see here the earthly redemptive ministry of Christ has begun there, there are some extra biblical material again in in church history that point to other miracles that Jesus did in his youth that, that there, are, there are some uh, that, that Jesus I think uh, resurrected a bird i, I don 't remember all of them, but, but there are Because there is a period of time between Jesus' birth and uh, his beginning of His public ministry, and I think the human mind is curious, there are extra-biblical writers outside of the canon of Scripture that have tried to surmise and insert various things that I think colloquially have been held. But John protects us from those secondary books by saying succinctly, look in verse 11. This is the this the first of his signs. This was the first one. This is the very first of Christ revealing his miraculous uh, uh, ability to overcome the problems in this particular situation and and his lordship over Creation. This is his displaying the reality of John chapter one, verses one through three, being the one who was in the beginning of beginnings, and he's he's for the first time displaying that in a very material sense. This is the first of his miracles. And what a miracle it is. There is water. Look in verse, I think it's verse eight. No verse nine. Verse nine. When the water of excuse me, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Water is now wine. In the Greek, water become. It literally is translated water that has become wine. My good friend Robert Frankie often there's things that break around this place and other places, and when they break, and he's diagnosing them, he'll look at it with a sense of consternation, and he's like, "That's not how that's supposed to work." Now, that's what's happening here. Water doesn't become wine. That's not how this is supposed to, that's not how this is supposed to work. No, no one just sees water becoming... That, that doesn't happen in the natural world. Uh, inquiring minds want to know, especially my own. And so I, I looked up. Like, how many steps are there in the winemaking prog- process? This isn't something they teach you in Bible college. For good reason. You should never teach 20-year-olds how to make wine because they'll do it. Uh, These these are the seven steps. There's de crushing, fermentation, maceration, and alcoholic fermentation, clarification, and then bottling. Those are all the steps that it takes to make wine. Jesus here skips right to the good part with supernatural intervention. He goes, water, wine. None of the other processes. And not only, I mean, talk about, we live in a time that displays the glory of God in that business people in the world today spend millions and millions of dollars cultivating grapes, cultivating generational vineyards that will be passed down that people can come and grab a bottle of wine and they'll swish it around in the glass and smell it and pick up the notes and all of those things and the body of the, I don't know. All of the things. But the things. The, 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 the goodness of the wine. And, and Jesus would trump all of those fine wines that, that take billions of dollars worth of industry to concoct. He just goes, give me some stale water and I'll make it into the best wine that you could ever imagine. He does that. Miraculously. Wonderfully, to demonstrate His power. What that shows is that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is the creator both of water and of wine. There's nothing that escapes His grasp. And I think what He's demonstrating in, in, in changing water into wine is that there's, these, are, these, are, these are lesser things in creation. And Jesus is showing His authority over everything in this first Miracle. Only Christ ultimately could do this. He didn't just make cheap wine. No, he made fine wine, good wine. Boy, that's a that's a stretch. I'm going to have to give an account for that in the next deacons' meeting. A Baptist pastor that just put good and wine in the same sentence. But not only does he make good wine, fine wine, he doesn't just make a little bit of it. He makes a lot of it. 180 gallons of it. He flips the entire problem on its head. And now you have to remember the feeding of the 5,000 is coming, right? We know that. We've, we've read John's Gospel. We understand that's yet ahead. And the feeding of the 5,000 would have been 5,000 men plus women and children. Five loaves, five fishes, and if memory serves me correct, there are 12 loaves left over at the very end. So when Jesus does something miraculously, He does it in abundance you see the acts of Jesus both in this narrative and in our lives always demonstrate his power and his ability but always in an abundant way and what we find in this text and in every word of scripture is that Christ is the Lord of all things of every molecule under heaven and he acts graciously and abundantly now, I want you to notice uh, the, the use of the word here, and I think that it's so important in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, John uses the word sign here, and it's defined as some, a, a distinguishing mark whereby something else is known. That which marks something out clearly. He's talking about a miraculous event that Jesus... Uh, caused, but John very intentionally doesn't use the word miracle. He uses the word sign. Jesus is full of miracles. Jesus does many miracles. Every time someone is converted from being a sinner following the course of this world to being in Christ, I would contend with you that that's the greatest of miracles. Jesus is a miracle worker. But every one of those miracles has an effect, and that effect is to point back to Jesus. And here, there is this clear distinction between just the normal means and a miracle and what Jesus does. We know that healing can take place by taking a a pill or by placing yourself under the care of the physician and doing what they say or under the care of a surgeon and undergoing an operation. But Jesus bypasses those normative, normal means of healing And He restores sight to the blind. He causes the lame to walk, the deaf to to hear. And Jesus does all of that without an HMO. And Next time you have to be on the phone with your insurance company, give praise to God that one day in glory you will never have to do that again. It will encourage you to be kind to the poor little operator that has to deal with you. Again, we have to ask the question, what are miracles about? I would contend with you that the church at at varying times and each one of us in our lives can be tempted to idolize the miracle and not see the point of the miracle. The miracle is always to point to who Jesus is. And John uses terminology that I think is very helpful here. John uses terminology to point out the reality that miracles are to point to the glory of Christ. Miracles are not those events that happen so that we don't necessarily have to deal with the difficulties of life. Now, that does happen. I'll get to that more in a second. But but that's not the first and primary means of a miracle. When God does something miraculous, He's doing it for a purpose. And that purpose is always the same. It's to bring glory to Himself and notoriety to His Son. Friends, when we read our Bible, we need, to, we need to reckon with this. If we're going to understand these first 12 verses of John chapter 2 well, we have to reckon with the fact that Jesus does not exist for us. We exist for Him and for His glory. We are a part of His redemptive theater. When things go wrong in our lives, we can pray that God would restore them, that He would heal us, that He would correct those things. And if He does, if He grants that, the first and primary reality of why He has done that is not just so that we can escape suffering. Now that's part of His abundance and His kindness, and I don't want to take away from that. But the fullness of why He answers and why He intervenes in those ways is to bring glory to His own name is to show Himself sufficient. This also points to the aseity of God. That God is sufficient in and of Himself. He is not walking around the earth seeking to build up a name for Himself and begging you to believe His miracles because He is somehow lacking. What we see in this this grand display of Him kindly and graciously intervening in the life of this young groom who has failed to do what He's called to do is that, that Jesus didn't need to do any of that. Jesus isn't performing the miracle out of some sense of... Well, I've got to do this so people will love me. Jesus is doing this to display that He needs nothing from anyone, that He is the ultimate redeemer of the entire cosmos. And see, the, the sad thing is, is that some come to the miracles of the New Testament, and they twist passages like these, saying that Jesus will give you everything that you want. That if you really have enough faith, what happened for this groom will happen to you. That the immediate proximate problem that you're facing will be undone if you have enough faith in Jesus. But friend, can I tell you this? I don't know what your problems are today. And I don't know exactly what Jesus will do about those problems what what I can tell you and what I do know from these first words of John chapter one and these first 12 verses of John chapter two is that Jesus is a savior full of grace and truth full of salvation and redemption he is powerful and lavish with his grace and so whatever you suffer here in Christ it will be okay the storm doesn't have to pass by. The, the wine doesn't have to the water doesn't have to be turned into wine in your own experience. You don't have to experience the, the miracle in the mundane circumstances of your life to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What we can know of this miracle is that whatever Jesus whatever Jesus is doing, he is doing to the point to point ultimately to his goodness and to his glory. You see, I think the word sign is a perfect word here, and I believe that in part because I believe in the doctrine of, the, of inspiration that God chose this exact word. But I also I understand it in the context of all of the Gospels. The other Gospels will use the word miracle repeatedly, that there are these miraculous things that happen. But John, imagine this about our brother John, cut straight to the point, just like he let out in chapter 1. Boom! when it comes to dealing with the miracles of Jesus, He gets to the point. Every miracle is a sign. a a something that marks out Jesus for who He is. Again, Kind to what? To, to His glory. To Him manifesting the reality of His kindness towards creation. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. What we have here, when Jesus shows up to the wedding and merely tells these servants, fill the vessels with water, and then He says, take some of that water become wine, to the master of the feast, he is, he is performing a spectacular supernatural event that gets our attention. That's what a miracle is designed to do. But it's not designed for us to keep our focus on the miracle, but rather that our gaze would be shifted... And that it would rather point towards the One who completed the miracle and that we be- behold the glory of Christ that is spoken of in verse 14 of chapter 1 and we would give worship to Christ that He is due. I, I do think it's an important parenthetical in this narrative too to, rem- to remind yourself of who He revealed Himself to. Uh, look at this, th- this passage. It- it- he-, he says in verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, parentheses, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom. Jesus doesn't reveal Himself to the groom. He doesn't reveal Himself to the to the master of the ceremony. He's not trying to get earthly attention. Who He reveals Himself to are the lowly people on the margins. It's very important to see the reality here that humility matters in the sight of God. that He reveals Himself not to those who think they have it all together, but to those who are in the margins. And so this sign was a sign to show the humble who the Father would save to the glory of His Son, what He was and what He was up to. This miracle still has the same effect on us today. He's showing to those who are humbled under the Gospel who His Son is. That He is the One who was in the beginning of beginnings. Who created all things. And who without nothing was made that was made. Now, I want you to see something else here. I want you to notice the absolute absurdity of those who would make this passage about miracles and not about Jesus. Mark that down. The first 12, passage, 12 verses of this is not about the wine, it's about the Savior. Some ministers, again, contort this passage. And if you have a problem, you just need to believe and have enough faith. You just need to wait on the miracle. You just need to trust and God will send you the the, the miracle that you need. And I've seen people live their entire existence disappointed and frustrated because they've been told to wait on a miracle. Well, to borrow from some Howard County language where I grew up, boy, the miracles done happened it's already passed it's already come we, we're not waiting on a miracle and then let me show you how i come to that conclusion well what did jesus say to his mother he said my hour is not yet come but if we read the entirety of the gospel standing this side of john's writing we understand his hour has already passed his hour did come. The, the hour when the most miraculous event that needed to take place, and again, that's what this whole narrative is is supposed to prove, that anything that needs to be done, Christ can do it. Well, the hour that Christ is talking to, His hour which would come and already has come in our lifetimes, and that miraculous event that needed to take place has taken place when Jesus hung on the cross there in the place of wretched sinners. He bore the eternal wrath of of God, so awful that as he looked forward to having to bear that wrath in his hour, he sweat great drops of blood. And there on the cross, he took. Those for whom the Father had given Him and He took those sinners. He took a particular group, Chad. Not the entire world. He took sinners who the Father had given Him before the foundation of the world and He did something more miraculous than it could ever happen with water and wine. He took those sinners and He made them saints. What a joy that is this morning. The miracle of miracles has already happened and it happened there on the cross. Our Savior is not desiring this morning that we would hope that He could do something trivial in our lives, but that we would look upon what He has already done, what He's already accomplished there on the cross. We sang it this morning in the Gospel doxology. I took my pen out and I wrote, Yes! His death forever sealed in time, that I am His and He is mine. That is the miracle of miracles. That is the sign of signs that points to who Jesus is. So then do you see the absurdity of someone telling you to wait on a miracle? Why wait on a miracle when the miraculous has already occurred? Now I'm not telling you, and if some of you... So Jay, do you believe in miracles? Yeah, I believe that God can do anything that... Look, this is my position on miracles. Miracles. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without without Him was not anything made that was made. He owns it all, and He can do whatever He pleases. But we, in this place, saved under the blood of Christ, have the greatest of all miracles when we read our Bible and we see the miracles, we can relate to them, but don't ever feel like you've been given something less than what is here in the text. Friends, I can promise you this. The wine, it was good wine. There's none of it left. There wasn't any of it left by the end of chapter 2, I promise you, knowing human depravity. That stuff's gone. The wine's been poured out. But God has poured His Spirit out in our hearts that we might believe. We are no longer those who are regulated by the debauchery of wine. And in fact, in Ephesians, we're given that picture. Don't be be given over to drunkenness where you're controlled by wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And we are filled with the Spirit. We are overflowing with the Spirit of God, those of us who are in Christ. We see the miraculous reality this groom was spared the embarrassment of his generation. Now nothing in this text says that the groom even knew that Jesus had done this. we, We don't know that detail. But we do know that Jesus spared this groom a lifetime of being embarrassed in front of the entire community by providing this wine and then he slipped out the door. But my friends, we are made acceptable in the sight of the Father for all of eternity through the miracle that Christ accomplished on the cross. We receive the greater miracle. We don't know that this man who was spared temporary embarrassment ever came to saving faith in Jesus. Now I hope he did. But I promise you, if he did and we get to heaven, he's not going to say, boy, y'all missed out. I was given a miracle at my wedding. We will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will all participate in the reality of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. The, 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 those who were deaf that had, had had their hearing restored to them in a natural sense eventually lost that hearing in death. But today, we hear the very name of Jesus and it changes our lives. The blind received sight from Christ But again, in some natural sense, at some point, that natural sight that was restored, every time Jesus gave hearing to the deaf and and, and allowed the lame to walk and and restored sight to the blind and and turned water into wine, all of those things point back to the miracle of His redemptive work. And so when we come to seeing sight restored, we, we have to come to John chapter. One verse 14 and reckon with the sight that's been restored in our own eyes remember the context of verse 14 the world is in a position that when the creator of the world comes into the world the world doesn't know him he comes to his own people they reject him and our natural bent is to do the same but there is an exception to the rule and that is when God gives you sight to see his son for who he is and that's exactly what's happening in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the problem is this, beloved. As fallen men, we are so enamored with power, and, and when it's God's power, when it's pure, when it's good, when it's rightly used, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but what we often do is we teach that the, the, the importance of this passage and other miraculous passages like it is to point that Jesus is this powerful One. Now, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. The point here is not just that, that, that Jesus is powerful. The point of this entire passage is that Jesus has come That everything in the Old Testament that needed to be fulfilled is fulfilled in Christ. What Jesus did in this narrative is to display the gracious provision that he afforded to a bridegroom at this wedding. But if you take a step back, so so we see Jesus graciously providing for this groom. If you're if you read your Bible too flatly, that's all you'll see. How sad that, wow, look at that miracle! Look at that. Jesus turned water into wine. Beloved, step back from the text and see what the Father is doing. Look, there's Jesus, the gracious provision for all of our souls. He's come in the flesh and He's demonstrating His power because we know He's going to redeem those that the Father has given Him on the cross. The point of this passage isn't that we would glory in the miracle, it's that the miracle would be the sign to point us to Him. That's the joy of the text, the, the reality, and this is what I want you to walk away with, is the water becoming wine points to the greater truth that God became man. That is what is being spoken of here. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of salvation and revelation. Full of grace and truth and as we leave this place today we can be sure that anything that needs to be done in our lives Jesus can do that is my emphatic position on the miraculous in this life if it needs to be done if it needs to be accomplished Jesus will do it here's the here's the quandary for us as human beings we don't know the eternal decree of God and we don't know what actually needs to be done and just merely what we want to be done But may God be praised forever. He knows what needs to be done. And we can rest assured Jesus will do those very things. So knowing that Jesus has our greatest need at the center of His life and that He's accomplished the greatest miracle of all miracles, turning sinners into saints there on the cross in His suffering What are we left with in this passage? How do we go out and live this life? Well, my encouragement is this. Recognizing first that the only reason we can see the Son of God is because of the miracle that God has done in our own life. That we do not view our own salvation, our own gathering as a church, and I mean this, 2023 and every one of you in here, this is a miraculous day. This is not natural. This being the place we meet week in and week out to sing praises to God is nothing short of God displaying His glory before a fallen world. So that's first. But secondly, in light of the fact that we know all miracles point to Jesus, and this first miracle is no less, I think, that we should do what Mary says we should do. Look in verse 5. His mother said to his servants, and every one of us gathered here today, our servants of the living God, do whatever He tells you. It's that simple. Would you pray with me? Father God, it is a miracle that fallen sinners would do whatever You tell them. It's a miracle of all miracles that those who were once the darkness, as Paul says in Ephesians, are now light in the Lord and are by the work of Your Spirit set free that we are able to do whatever Christ tells us to do. But Father, we know that we can't do those things apart from Your Spirit. Father, help us guard us from arrogance thinking that we can live the Christian life apart from the Spirit. Help us to understand that we must rest in Christ and in the work of the Spirit on our behalf. Father, help us to to honor You in every area of our lives. Father, would You send Your Spirit in our lives in a mighty way and convict us where we haven't done what Christ has told us to do. Uh, Would would You bring us to our knees that we would look to You, uh, that we would have a greater desire to honor You. Father, might we hold the the miracles that You've done in Your Word in the proper tension? might we grow to glorify You for being the One who rules over all of creation, that, that has the power and the ability to work supernaturally? independently of the rules of nature. Might we constantly honor You and glorify You for being that God? Father, might we also see the reality of the point of those miracles is to always point us back to Yourself. Help us not to become idolaters of the miracles themselves, but to always come back to Christ. Father, I I pray for one who is here today that hasn't had their sight restored, that's still spiritually blind, that You would open their eyes eyes, that You would open their ears, that You would change their heart and their mind about who Christ is, and that they would run to You in faith and repentance. Father, I pray for Your church that we would not shrink back from Your Word, but that we would be a people who intend to disciple others to do all that You have commanded.